Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Many of us have these moments in our life uh, that if you think about it for just a few seconds, you'd realize I've got these moments in my life that were really life-altering moments, defining moments, where I made decisions. Uh, they were kind of almost demarcation points, or you might refer to them as critical forks in the road of your life that defined who you were going forward. And when we think about those decisions from our own lives, the truth truth is, when we look at it, it's really more than just the specific action we took in that moment. Those defining moments are really more about what we would stand for and what we wouldn't stand for in life, who we would be and who we would model our life after. That's what we're dealing with today. That kind of a moment when we drive a stake in the ground and we say, this is where I stand and this is what I'm going to stand for in life. For many of you, you've got a number of those days. For some of you, that day may have been the day you chose to follow Jesus. Others of you might point to days when you hit bottom and you decided to walk away from destructive things in your life, whether it was drugs or relationships or something else. You decided to change and be something different, someone different. Today we complete the uh, Courageous Choices series and we've been looking and and we're going to look today at at one of those defining moments when Joshua actually drives the stake in the ground and he invites the people of Israel to come and do that same thing, that make that same choice. And what we're going to see today as we listen to what we're talking about, the encouragement in today's message is that God has this constant focus to lead each and every one of us, individually and together as a church, into a meaningful, good, promised land. The tale of caution that's associated with the story today in the Bible is that we as humans, though, are so easily drawn to things which undermine God's good promise for us. Last week we ended up in Joshua 14. Today we pick it up 10 chapters later in Joshua 24. And between last week and today, what we see in the text of Joshua is that God has continued to give the Israelites more and more of the promised land. They're settling into this new good life that he's given them. And the scripture recounts battles and victories and spends a lot of time actually in those chapters talking about administrative details of who got what land and how it was going to be divided up and all those kinds of things going on. And as we pick up the story in Joshua 24, Joshua is now uh, 110 years old. He's at the end of his life. And he's one of the very few people still alive there who remember what it was like and experienced slavery in Egypt and experienced God delivering them from that slavery through the ten plagues. And he remembers what it was like to be up against the the Red Sea with with the Egyptian army breathing down their back and for God to deliver them from that danger. And then he's one of the only ones who remember what it was like to be in some of those desperate moments when they were in the desert, when they didn't have food and God provided food through manna and other ways. And and at times when they were in the desert and they didn't have water and God provided water. He's, He's one one of the few alive who actually remember Moses, this great man of faith. He was Moses' protege. 
And he, he's one of the few that remembers vividly the inner circle conversations of when they came to the promised land the first time and the 12 spies come back and the 10 spies are all talking and they're trying to rile up the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel, into rebellion and they successfully do that. And he's one of the few people who remembers what it was like for him and Caleb and Moses to stand against that rebellion of the people. He's one of the few who remembers that what a high price that they paid for that rebellion as he continued, even as the one who was advocating against it, he continued to be a faithful friend and faithful leader of the people of God even while he paid the price of their sin that he didn't want to do. And he remembers the great miracles we've talked about in Judges that led them through this place in the promised land and the difficult decisions of leadership he's had to face in the last 30 to 35 years of his life when he has been the leader of all of Israel. He's seen in that time some of the most amazing miracles ever recorded in history. And many of the people with him have seen those miracles as well. But Joshua still knows the fickleness of the human heart. How hard it is to stay faithful to God over time because he's lived himself through the sin of Achan. On the heels of some of the greatest miracles in all of history, he saw a man's heart become so fickle and spread among his family. Miracles can help convince us that God is real. But we see over and over again in Exodus and Numbers and Joshua stories of people right after encountering God in amazing ways struggling immediately with their faith in God. See, Joshua knows even these miracles aren't good enough to solve the fickleness of the human heart or to solve the problems that he knows are still present and cure the disease that he knows is still present spiritually among the people that he's leading right then and there. And Joshua is preparing for his end of his life, and he wants to ensure that the people that he's led and loved for this long have a better future. So God asks him to gather them all at this place called Shechem, to have the whole uh, nation come together and renew their covenant that they have with God. And see, this place, Shechem, it's the same exact place where Abraham, almost 500 years earlier, met with God and reaffirmed and established this covenant that God would turn these people into a great nation, that he would one day bring them back and give them this land where God confirmed that promise to Abraham. And now they stand on that very place, returning this important place, this special place, once again, to do the same thing with God. And it's this place that God asks them to drive that stake Again, a stake they've believed their whole life, a stake that they've followed, a stake that has led them to the promise that they've had so far, but a stake that needs to be renewed in our lives on a regular basis. Joshua 24 starts summing up uh, what's going to happen here by, by, by God taking, uh, he talks about God taking Abraham and, and, and out of Iraq. It was the current day Iraq is where he originally was from. And he was a person who came out of a country that was full of idol worshipers to the land they're now standing on and fulfilling that promise. He enumerates in the lead up to what we're going to read here in a second some of the miracles of bringing them out of slavery and into Egypt and all the miracles of bringing them into the promised land as far as they are to that day. And then the scripture says this in verse 13. It says, So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. You lived in them and eat from the vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. 
God's talking about how he's provided every one of their needs for him. Now the fear of the Lord, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the God of your ancestors that you, your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the God of the Amorites in whose land you were living. And then Joshua says this, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua gets right to the point in this, in issuing a challenge of asking them to make this defining choice of driving their stake firmly into the ground as to who they will serve. And I find it interesting, almost funny, that he gives them multiple choice options. I mean, that would be like me coming to the end of a message inviting you to want to follow Jesus, and I say, okay, uh, you can serve today and choose to follow either the Dalai Lama, Muhammad, Oprah, or Jesus. I mean, that's just kind of an odd invitation right at the end of a message. But Joshua knew he couldn't force the choice. Still, after all the, God, all the good that had gone on, he wanted to still invite the people deeper in driving their stake of commitment even deeper. So Joshua gives them four choices, like directions on a compass. Each choice takes you in a different direction. The choice to serve the God of our ancestors, our family. The choice to serve the gods of our of your past. The choice to serve the gods of your local culture that surround you. and the, Or the one true God himself. Now just to give credit, we're borrowing a lot of the, uh, the, the outline and some of the ideas for how to deal with this text from pastor and author Kyle Eidelman. When you read this text, though, I, I, you know, the first thing sometimes we react to this text on is, is we say, well, we don't have a habit of bowing down to golden wood idols. And I have no intention of sacrificing my child on an altar to the God of fertility. So why do we need to look at this, right? How does this apply to us? But let's step back from that. Let's forget the details for a moment. Notice that each category has something to do with time and place of our life. Our ancestors, our family, the place we have been in the past and we've wanted to leave behind. The place we're living now that surrounds us and the one true God. And we'll see as we deal with this today and talk about it more that the gods that you and I struggle come at us from all of these same places in our life. They may not be gold and wooden statues, probably aren't, but they all come with different costumes on and they're still as powerfully attractive and relevant and tempting to us today as they were to these people in the ancient times. But the most important thing we need to get as a base for this that's so easily missed in this text is is an underlying assumption that goes through the whole thing. And that underlying assumption is this. Each and every one of us will make a choice to serve one of these gods. And it isn't always the one we verbally say we're going to serve. Why is that? It's because all of us are worshipers. We are hardwired to worship every person, every culture, every nation, every generation throughout all of human history have been worshipers. Everyone worships. Everywhere we go, 
we can observe and see people's choices of what and who they worship. You can go to the most primitive places in the world and see what they worship, and you can go to the most intellectually sophisticated places and see what they worship as well. Even among people who say they're not religious, you still see worship because everyone worships a God. The question is, who or what will be the object of our worship and what will be the outcome of our life because of who we worship? See, we get confused with this. As, as Eidelman says in an illustration, he says, if someone doesn't have the drawer of a dresser of organized religion, labeled organized religion in their dresser, they, they assume that the question of, of who God is and do they worship doesn't really apply to them. But the reality is our dresser still has lots of other drawers labeled work or family or money or hobbies or sex or romance. And he goes on to define it this way. He says, worship is the built-in human reflex to put your hope in something or someone and then chase after it, right? And it can be seen in what you spend your money on. It can be seen in how you spend your time. It can be seen in what you get angry at or frustrated at about when you don't have it. It can be seen in what you believe will make you happy. Whatever you are worshiping is really the Lord of your life, regardless of who you say is the Lord of your life. Jesus says in Matthew 15, where he actually quotes a passage from Isaiah, he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And the question of today is, where really is our heart in life? It's a question that, frankly, you and I need to ask ourselves over and over again regularly if we really want to realize the full promise of what God wants for each one of our lives. Because worship is what we do. We decide what we want, good or bad, and then we make sacrifices to get that. Eidelman actually concludes by saying this. He says, The end result is that our lives begin to take the shape of what we care about most. We each make the choice to worship, and then at some point we discover the choice makes us. The object of your worship will, be t- will determine your future and define your life. It's the one choice by which all other choices are motivated. So Joshua gives them four choices, and let's look at each one of the choices today. Option one is the God of our ancestors. Abraham, again, the father of the nation, he grew up in Iraq. His family was all worshipped, worshipped dozens of God in a society that worshipped dozens of God. We see in the Bible that Abraham's father worshipped idols. We see later on that when he sends a son, when Jacob goes back to find a wife from his relatives still in Iraq, that they're still worshipping idols. And the belief in these gods remained a strong influence, even in Israel, to the very day that Joshua is speaking to them in our text today. And Joshua really, truly wanted to know if the people were going to resort to their historical roots and their family values or remain faithful to the one true living God. Now, this question is still relevant to us today. I mean, our children, our children, our, and the people's children around us, and, and the people our kids are married, and maybe even the person you married, were raised with different gods controlling their life trajectory and motivation. One of my closest friends in college came from a really successful family, 
Everyone in it was successful in business or somewhere, all the way back to his grandparents. They were all leaders of corporations. His dad was CEO and president of several large corporations. They grew up in the best country clubs of Chicago and Minnesota and Minneapolis. At one point, he decided to not be a medical doctor. He decided to be a pastor. And man, the pressure was on from his family. I mean, his family were all churchgoers. They wanted to follow Jesus. They were all genuinely trying to follow Jesus. Good people. And yet the God of image and financial success came out when one of their sons picked something that was not going to be that for him. Think about how that's true for your family, the family in which you were raised. Is it possible that the gods you struggle with that compete with Jesus for your attention and bring tension to your life in the use of time and family priorities and career and finances are the same gods that your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents struggled with worshiping all too often instead of following only Jesus? Did your parents worship sex or sports or... Maybe they worshipped being stingy with their money because they wanted to have a really big nest egg and a security blanket. Or maybe they had the opposite. Maybe they wanted to spend all the money on anything that would make them feel good and happy about themselves, and so they overspent. Was it status? Maybe it was alcohol? Was it a God of never being embarrassed and, and therefore also never really being truly honest and real with others either? Maybe your parents sacrificed all on the altar of career success, sacrificing days off and sacrificing vacation and just to climb the ladder. Their life revolved around work, and, and so did their mood. If work was going well, their mood was good. If work wasn't, their, work, their mood wasn't. And instead of being, finding their acceptance and identity in the love of Christ, they found it in bonuses and promotions and awards and plaques on the wall. And truth be told... It's very likely that if that was the home you grew up in, that that very same drive and good work ethic out of balance and outside of healthy priorities is likely something you struggle with today as well, right? Good things. Work ethic is a good thing. All the things we mentioned are gifts from God. They're good things, but they're in the wrong place of priority in our lives. Good things that become ultimate things become idols. And then those good things are no longer freeing or good in our lives. Option two is the God of your past. The Egyptians also had a diverse set of deities and religious beliefs, the sun, moon, and stars, and a whole bunch of other things they worshipped. And the Israelites, think about it, they lived in Egypt for longer than the United States has been a nation. It's a long time. Certainly, they had enduring cultural and religious beliefs that crept in and were still a part of them because old habits, old worship patterns die hard in our lives. Think about it. Do you ever struggle personally uh, with uh, a thought or belief or a pattern of behavior or a way of viewing the world around you that you felt like you wanted to leave in the past a long time ago? but it still keeps coming up. You know, a couple weeks ago I shared you the kind of hilarious story, at least for you, of the time I took a bath in hog manure, right? Hog poop. 
And, uh, and that evening when I went home, I remember walking into my garage. I hadn't even made it in the house yet. And I hear my mom hollering at me from the kitchen. You stink! Take your clothes off in the garage. Don't come in the house. And I went upstairs, showered for an over an hour. And everywhere I went for the next three days, whether it was the grocery store, the post office, church, softball games, a not-so-sweet smell followed me around. I mean, I even tried putting Old Spice on, which is something I never did as a kid. That was even weird in and of itself. And that wouldn't even get rid of the, neg- the, the bad smell. And here's my point. Many people become Christians, and we ask God for forgiveness, and we accept His forgiveness. And we ask Jesus to be the master of our lives and to change our lives. And everything's going on really well until all of a sudden we catch a whiff of something that we realize we've been carrying from our past and it's still with us. See, some of that stuff is embarrassing. Some of that stuff is painful. Some of the stuff feels like it boxes us into this unhelpful pattern of behaviors. And some of it feels just outright wrong to us. And we look at it and we go, this is stuff that should have been destroyed and removed from my life long ago. I've tried to move on for this, but it's managed to stick with us. All of us experience that, right? Sometimes we have a hard time understanding how this stuff can stick around so long, but, but the problem is not necessarily that we need to choose to follow Jesus again. We can drive that stake deeper. The problem is that we've been trying to follow him without being as rigorous as we need to be of throwing that stuff off and keeping it in the past and changing it and getting rid of that stuff from the past by relying on him. And the question is, how do you move beyond the past to live without those old ways of living? The question is, how do you fully dethrone that old God that tries to rule your life and live in freedom? Instead, see, Joshua still knows there's something of Egypt still hanging around on the Israelite people. These old gods, they die hard. And sometimes when we meet Jesus, those old gods go quiet for a while in our life, and then they end up regrouping and they come back and seek to rule our hearts again. So even if you've chosen to follow Jesus in the past, Joshua, what he's teaching us here is that we need, to, we need to regularly have this intentional time of covenant renewal and show, and show, that shows all of us that we have this constant need in our life to come back to this place of driving the stake in the ground to say, Jesus is going to be the one and only Lord of my life and to make the courageous choice to look at our life honestly and throw that stuff off that keeps trying to come back into our hearts and control us again. Another option he gives, option three, the gods of our culture. Even though Israel won battle after battle and they've pushed the people back and out of the way of the promised land and they've taken so much of the promised land, the reality is the peoples of the land still lived around and even among the Israelites for, from this time all the way through history. They're still living around them. They're still there. And among the people at the time that they were displacing were two dominant gods. One was named Baal, which means owner, master, or lord. That's what it means. And another one was a goddess, Ashtoreth, which they had all sorts of sexual rituals and sacrifices around. And we see repeatedly throughout the Old Testament the people of Israel being enticed to come back and worship Baal and Ashtoreth. These gods of our culture often win 
in our lives simply because of time and proximity, that we can never escape them because we run into them every day. We run into the gods of our culture through people's assumptions and how they live, what's important to them. We see them in the advertisements. We see them in the stories of the movies and the, the books we read and the humor we see and the news and the opinions that we see and the motivational speeches we hear. These gods of our culture are present in all of those things everywhere around us. And the question for us is, what are the gods of Northeast Greater Columbus area that we are so used to seeing that we really don't see them? Is it possible that we don't even recognize some of the idols in our life that are trying to compete with Jesus because they're hiding in plain sight? We don't recognize them because it's all we've known. It's all that's been modeled for us to be successful and normal in life is what these things have been around us, right? For those of you who've moved around in the country a lot, you may be able to see this a little more easily than others. It's really clear when you move sometimes the idols of different cultures, right? Clear cultural idols I've experienced. I mean, when we lived in Tulsa for 17 years, with its emphasis on, you see a picture here, of conservative dress politically and socially and economically. And then you go to Eugene, Oregon, with its emphasis on being natural and organic and individually unique and expressive. And, and if you didn't, if you were paying attention and you had friends on the West Coast, you may have realized that yesterday was Oregon's premier nude cycling event. Over 10,000 nude riders riding in the buff. That's just a little bit different than ride recovery, right? Although I imagine a lot of those riders do need recovery after sitting on those seats with nothing on. Sorry. And I just couldn't. Sorry. <laughs> Wendy remembers one of our first weekends in Oregon. <clears throat> and we were at a park after church. And I was pushing Derek and Elise on the swings. And I was dressed in my Tulsa conservative khaki best. And uh, sitting next to uh, an Oregon dad with his dreadlocks, painted purple fingernails and painted toenails and shirt, no shirt and hemp shorts and nice. He was a really nice, friendly guy. Tulsa was this do right, always look good. The ladies could never go out to the store without all their makeup on, their hair done, looking good, matching clothes, belt, shoes and purse. In Eugene, it was this culture of don't tell me what to do and no constraints. And if you went to the grocery store without remedying your bedhead, it was perfectly fine to go there without bedhead remedied in slippers and pajamas, even if you were the CEO of a successful company. Nobody thought anything about you showing up in the grocery store that way. Culture affects greatly what we see as important and not important and what we choose to pursue in life. And too many of us don't see the obvious things of how this world has conformed us to it and how some of that conformity ends up putting gods and idols in our life that motivate us in a way that prevents us from the full good and the beauty God desires for us. What are the gods of our culture here in New Albany and Westerville and Columbus and Granville and Johnstown all around us? The gods that form that background scenery of our life that give us the basic expectations that can easily put pressure on us and drive us without us ever fully realizing that we're being driven by a wrong, out-of-balance thing. Joshua and the Bible consistently ask us to look at this area to ensure that we are really, truly serving only one God. 
and not the gods of our surrounding culture. Option four that Joshua gives is true north. It's the one true God himself. Joshua's final choice in reality is really, it's not really four choices in reality, it's really two choices because the other three choices are all choices to worship an idol other than God. Before Joshua gave all these options to the people to respond to, he kind of set them up. He kind of stacked the deck a little bit. He listed a bunch of the miracles and the promises God had fulfilled. And then he asked the question, and essentially asking this question, what he's, what he's saying is this. He's saying, what have these other gods done for you that is even remotely as good as the one true God? And it's a good question that it's really helpful for us to wrestle with. There's actually a true story where this question is being asked. And some of you may struggle because it, it's tied to a school up north that we don't mention other than, this, other than after a Buckeye victory on Thanksgiving. Tom Brady, a former Wolverine, after his third of four Super Bowls, is interviewed by 60 Minutes by Steve Croft from 60 Minutes. And in it, he actually raises the question. Remember, I mean, this is Brady. He's the, he was a sixth-round choice. He was like an afterthought. He wasn't even sure he was going to end up getting drafted. And then he becomes the most famous quarterback in the league, the most successful, dating a, a, a succession of supermodels till he, till he marries one, and he's one of the wealthiest NFL players ever. And he actually asks the interview this question. He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? He goes on and says, I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it's all about. You reached my, I reached my goal, my dream, my life, but me... I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be all it's cracked up to be, he says to Croft. And then Croft proceeds to ask Brady another question he says, about, about, about what he thought the answer might be. And Brady replies saying, what's the answer? I wish I knew. I love playing football. I love being a quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts of me that I'm still trying to find. And essentially what you hear Brady asking is, what have these other gods done for me? And his answer is, not enough. Not enough. If we go back to Joshua, how did the people respond to Joshua's challenge to choose among the four choices? Well, we already read that. They, they declared their allegiance to the one true God and Him only, to serve Him only. And with that kind of a response, you would expect Joshua to go, Yes, great job, guys. Be a cheerleader. Fantastic. So glad to hear it. But that's actually not Joshua's response. Let's look at his response. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is holy. He is jealous. He will not forgive your rebellion or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, He will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after He has been good to you. He's saying if we choose to place an idol ahead of Him, that's going to be the result. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua goes on in verse 23, he says, Now then, so basically what he's saying here is, Okay, if that's your answer, then this is what you need to do. You need to throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Think about that. While they are saying to Joshua, We will serve the Lord and worshiping, worship only Him, they still have actual wood and golden idols in their homes. The answer they're giving, I'm sure, is quite genuine. They really want 
to serve the one true God because they've indeed seen all this good stuff from him. But even for them, having such obvious contradictions to the statement of dedication that they're making, they still don't see the disconnect and how important it is to leave that stuff, to throw it away, to get it out of their lives. How much more for us when our idols that we struggle with are so less obvious? Joshua is asking the people not just to drive the stake in the ground for the one true God. He's also asking us to stay diligent of leaving the past behind, of shedding these old gods, of not letting them creep back into our life. How do we do that? How do we identify those gods? Well, it takes a lot of intentional reflection and time of prayer to look at it. But let me give you a few questions you could ask yourself and pray about throughout the week. What causes you to feel disappointment? That can be a sign that something is becoming far more important in your life than it should be. A sign that you maybe have placed too much hope and desire in something other than God. Here's another question. What do you complain about the most or what do you get defensive about the most? If you can't identify that, ask family and friends. They'll be happy to tell you, right? But think about it. If it's about finances, and that's what you get defensive about when somebody challenges that, challenges you on that, then it's highly likely that money is in a position in your life that is taking away, taking you away from the good place that God wants that to be in your life. And it's become something too important that drives you instead of allowing you to be obedient to Christ in that. If you complain or get defensive about being critiqued or not being respected at at the office or at home, then it could be that what people think about you is becoming more important than it should be in your life, and God's idea of who you are is not important enough. What do you make financial sacrifices for? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Jesus says. And that's so true. If you're in debt, that in debt in a way that's not healthy and not and not good, at the same, and at the same time you're neglecting the more important things in your life, like saving to replace your cars, of retirement, of giving as God asks you to give, of paying off your house, of being having a well balanced budget that covers the essential needs well, then the God of money is likely too strong in your life. And take FPU starting during this service, July 10th. What worries us? Is the idea of losing your job or losing your house or losing someone significant to you? Is the idea of being a fear of being critiqued or failing or the fear of being alone something that keeps you up at night? Whatever creates anxiety, whatever causes you to lose sleep, whatever drives you to work and take actions that are outside of what you know are a healthy balance for life has the potential to be an idol for you. To what do you go for comfort? Where do you go when you're hurting and struggling with hope? Do you go to the refrigerator? Do you go to the internet? Do you go to video games or books or TV or or porn or romance or sex? Where do you go emotionally to rescue yourself from having to face the pain and hurt and disappointment that you face in life. That may be an idol for you 
if it's out of balance. What ticks you off? Are you so competitive that when the Buckeyes lose, your mood tanks for a couple days? When you don't get first or you don't succeed like you want to do, do you start to get really angry at yourself, disdain yourself, or get angry at others and have become more of a quick temper? That very well may reveal that there is an idol of your own performance and having to be good enough instead of God being in that place where he, you accept, you're accepted, you're loved, you're forgiven, and you trust him to be the one to empower a good, meaningful life for you. What are your dreams? What are your dreams? What fantasy has gripped you that, that gets you to really energize? What aspirations do you have? Ask yourself this question about those things. Is your motivation to give glory to God Or is your motivation in that dream to establish your own worth, your own glory, your own fame, and your own fortune? If it's the latter, it's likely reflective of a God that's competing for your attention with Jesus. See, the reason idolatry is such a big deal to God is that only the God who created you and knows how you are wired can fulfill the greatest joy and happiness for your life, can make the most effective expression of the gifts and talents he's, he's created you with. And when you make something else more important than him, the good he intends to flow through your life by giving you money, by giving you relationships and achievements and talents, it becomes corrupted. And instead of your life becoming this beautiful land flowering with, a, with this beautiful river flowing through it and life everywhere. Your pursuit of the other gods causes your life to become this stagnant, stinking, disease-filled, evaporating, shrinking pond of water that can no longer sustain the life God wants you to experience. See, today's historical count is also a cautionary tale for us because we see written just shortly after this in Judges 2 that it says this, After Joshua's whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the anger of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them just as he had sworn to them would take place if they made something else an idol other than him. And they were in great distress. Courageous choices is what this series has been about. God eagerly desires each and every one of us to enter and live fully and live freely in a promised land, a good, meaningful life He has planned for each of us individually and us together as a community of faith, as a church. But our choices each day determine our future. And the most important choice we can make, the most important choice we need to review and renew on a regular basis is our wholehearted commitment to choose God and along with that to reject any other idol in our life to keep God completely at the center of our life so that we remain, we remain and we become fully faithful to God and we persevere in our pursuit of God's presence so that every single generation has their own stories of God's miracle working power and provision showing up.
But do we trust God's good plan? Do we believe that He's promised, that the promised land He has for us is far better than anything we can imagine or think of or pursue on our own or do in our own way? Will we make the courageous choice individually and as the people of Quest to be diligent in choosing Him and to not let other things compete with that choice? God's inviting us to renew that covenant with Him. This is an important time. God's been bringing us into our promised land more and more as individuals and as a congregation, as a community of faith reaching this community. And there's more that He has for us. But I think God's brought us to this series and this day for a time to renew that covenant and for us to each take the time to look at our lives and say, God, is there anything competing with you? My past, my family, my own expectations, my own desires. Is there anything competing with you? And help me live free of that. Now, if you're here today and you've never chosen to follow Jesus, then you've never had that watershed moment of driving your stake in the ground in the first place. And I want to invite you today to claim that land and that life of God's promise for you. It's waiting there for you to claim. All you have to do is declare that you're going to follow Jesus. All you have to do is receive His forgiveness. And you can invite Him to do that right here, right now, today in your own words. And do that. Would you all stand with me right now? And as you stand, and as I begin to pray in a moment, would you in your own words just express this choice to God that we have today? Maybe you're driving that stake. Maybe you're redriving that stake for the hundredth time to renew this covenant. Because the question that Joshua asks the people then is the question I'm asking all of us today. Who will you serve? My response, and I hope our response together will be Joshua's. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God, I pray that you'd come to us and that you would continue your gracious outpouring of your presence among us and that you would expand that and that you would help us see the areas that we fall prey to our family idols, our cultural idols. And Lord, that you would teach us to follow you in a way that we would drive that stake and follow only you and we would walk into the freedom and we would walk into all of the promise that you have us, not just part of it, that we wouldn't settle for part of it. But we keep redriving that stake of commitment to you. Keep shedding those things as they try to creep back, because they do. Keep accepting your forgiveness and keep moving into your promise. So Lord, would you come and help us do that today? In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest's podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.